Good morning. Matt Frey from Park Cities Presbyterian Church. So glad to be with you this morning. It really is a privilege. My wife uh, and I commented uh, during the greeting of peace, this church uh, feels very much like our church that we attended while we were in seminary. We liked that church. We like this church. It's good to worship with you. It's good to, to be with you. David told me you recently concluded a series on the book of Philippians. As you know, that's a book filled with mutual affirming love of the church at Philippi and the Apostle Paul. Deep bonds of love that he pours out throughout that book, calling them his, not only his friends, but his brothers and sisters, his beloved, uh, the people he longs for, his crown and joy. And in so many ways, while we don't know each other uh, personally uh, in, in great detail, um, we at Park City's Presbyterian Church uh, love you at Metro Crest. Uh, we are grateful uh, that like Paul and the church at Philippi, we share together in the partnership of the gospel in our city, um, in our community. And so it's so good to be with you, and it's encouraging to, uh, to know there are saints here in Carrollton worshiping God with great joy and serving Him with great faithfulness. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to turn to a passage uh, that is really interesting. It's interesting because it is poetry. Uh, And for some of you, maybe already I've lost you. (laughs) Not into poetry, but I promise this is is really interesting. It's it's almost exciting at times. Um, It's a passage that comes at the end of the narratives of 1 and 2 Samuel. It's 2 Samuel chapter 22. And after long, drawn-out, numerous chapters where the author of these books of Samuel is telling us about David and his life and God's work in David's life, David himself then in this chapter pauses and is the author. He's the speaker. And he looks back on all that God has done, particularly in his career as king, but in many ways, throughout his life, and pours out this incredible autobiographical song, singing about what God has done for him in his life. And so let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. This is Second Samuel chapter 22. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. It's long. We're really going to focus on its its most direct and crucial passages, verses 1 through 20, and then verses 47 through 51. So beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord 
to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered his voice, and he sent arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And then skipping down to verse 47, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we ask as we look to this, your word, that you would speak, that we would listen, that your Holy Spirit would, would shine forth the truths of the promises in these pages and apply them to our hearts in just the way that only you know that we need this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, of all the songs David wrote, this is arguably the greatest. It's arguably the greatest for two reasons. First, this is the only song of David's and really the only chapter in the Bible that shows up twice in God's Word. This chapter appears in our Bibles not only as 2 Samuel 22, but also as Psalm 18, almost verbatim, the same exact song spread forth in two passages of God's Word. So by sheer repetition, God seems to be indicating this is important, this is significant, this is great. But another reason this song, although it's not as well known as some of David's songs, Psalm 23 or 51 or 119, This song is great because it summarizes God's work in David's life. It gives David's kind of autobiographical, experiential summary of his life. This is David's musical memoir of his role as a child of God and as a king of Israel. 
And so as I read through this and, and thought about that context of, of a king writing, writing about what God has done in his life, writing the story of his life, thought about, well, are there other examples of songs like this? A, a composer or an artist or a band writing, writing a song about their own lives, or, or even more specifically, someone in the position of royalty having a song about their life. And I only thought of two. First is the song uh, that Elton John sang at Princess Diana's funeral in 1997, A Candle in the Wind, not originally about her, but retrofitted for her, dedicated to her. But that's, that's a little bit of a stretch. More accurate is the song my wife reminded me of about uh, someone who was not a king but a prince who grew up in uh, West Philadelphia. It was on the playground where he spent most of his days there. And then he moved to live with his aunt and uncle on the other coast in a town called Bel Air. It's amazing that you guys know this. Just the reference to West Philadelphia. You have trained them well, David. (laughs) Now, if you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, no sweat. David will rap the whole song for you after our worship service this morning, I'm sure. Neither of those two songs provide very much for us by the way of really rich and insightful reflection on our lives, certainly not from a theological perspective. This is the song before us, David's song. And it helps us think about, okay, how does David envision his life? How does David tell the story of his life? How might we do similarly? How might we think about our lives, how we tell the story of our lives and God's work in it. That's what I want to think about with you for a few moments through these verses. And so there's three broad characteristics of David's song that I think are incredibly instructive for us. First, and I think this is on the outline that you have in uh, the insert in your bulletin. First, David's song is doxological. It is doxological. That means it's it's a God-centered song of praise to God. It's doxological. And you can see that, especially in verses 1 through 4, but I want to just look at verses 2 and 3 again. Because these ver- this is one long sentence in which David is pouring forth his doxology to God. He says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. There's three fascinating things about this one sentence that reflect its doxological content and tone. First, did you notice how many titles David uses for God? In this one sentence, he actually packs more titles for God into this one sentence than he ever uses in any other entire psalm in the Psalter. It's amazing. He is bursting forth with God's attributes and God's names. And notice the second thing notice that David is not referring to God being a rock or a fortress or even referring to God being the rock or the fortress, but what is the language he uses? My rock, 
my fortress, my deliverer, my savior. David is is worshiping to be sure. He's praising God's character and his works, but he is expressing the personal bond that he has with his God, or really more appropriately, that God has made to him. That covenant relationship that God has sealed and secured and and acted on throughout David's life. Third, David here in in this verse, but throughout the whole psalm really, David is celebratory. He's celebratory. He is not merely saying true things about God. That would be great. But that would simply make the song theological. Saying true things about God. But this is not a, simply a theological song. It's a doxological song. David is celebrating true things about God. In so many ways, that's a reflection of our worship service this morning. We're not here simply to to name who God is and what he has done, though we do that. We're here to celebrate it. We're here to come personally with wonder and with awe into the presence of the holy God together as his people and to celebrate and feast upon his promises to us as his people. As David says in verse 4, he's doing this, he's calling upon the Lord because God, his God, is worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be praised, and this song pours that out. David's song is not this formal, uh, official statement of a king about his God. It's not just David saying the right things, saying what he ought to say as a Christian or as the king of Israel in some cool and calculated official way. David is speaking here from the heart genuinely, passionately, worshipfully pouring out his praise for God's work in his life. And the same should be true for you and me in how we think, in how we feel, in how we speak about, in how we summarize the story of our lives, whether we are very young, whether we are very old and have walked with God for decades. However, old we are, for however long you have been a believer, the story of your life is not about your family, about who you love and who has loved you. It's not about your work. The story of your life is not about your your home or your career or your income. The story of your life and mine is about God and His work in our lives. What has God done in our lives. That's what makes it significant. God is the one in whose image we are made. God is the one in whom we live and breathe and have our being. God is the one who has turned our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He's the one in who has come to us and been with us in his son Jesus Christ, made like us that he might go to the cross for us. God is the one who has given us his spirit, who walks with us and guides us into all truth. God is the one who is even now preparing a place for us when he calls us home. God's the one who's going to return on that last day. He's going to return again. We've sung of it already. And that's the story of our lives. 
That is what is significant in our lives, is that we participate in that great redemptive story. A few years ago, there was a movie about a very famous veteran. This is Memorial Day weekend. And one of the most famous veterans of World War II was a guy named Louis Zamperini. 2014, there was a movie made about uh, his life. Louis Zamperini uh, was an Olympic athlete, uh, participated as a track athlete in the 1936 Olympics. In 1941, joined the Army Air Corps. In 1943, was on a mission flying over the Pacific Ocean when his plane crashed. And of the 11 men on the plane, uh, eight of them died, three of them survived. Two of them, Louis included, for 47 days at sea in a life raft. And on the 47th day, they were rescued, only it was by a Japanese Navy ship. Brought to Japan in an internment camp for two years. Eventually, in 1945, uh, in the war being over, set free. Returned to America. And that's where the movie ends. But that's not the most important part about Louis's life. If you know the story, uh, if you've read the book by Laura Hillenbrand uh, called Unbroken... You know that that's not the the most important part of Louis' life, was not that great tragedy and endurance through suffering. The greatest part of Louis' life came a few years later in 1949 when he walked into a tent in Los Angeles and heard a young preacher named Billy Graham. Billy Graham was holding a crusade, one of his larger early crusades. To that point, Billy was not very well known until William Randolph Hearst sent out a telegram to his staff with two words. They said, Puff Graham. And from that day forward, as the Graham family tells it, Billy Graham was flocked to by the press and then flocked to by the population. And Louis walked into a tent in 1949 and heard Billy Graham preach, and he hated it. And the altar call came, and he walked out. But his wife made him go back the next night because she knew his life was a mess. PTSD from years of trauma, alcoholism, the void inside his soul, despite being a, a hero of war, He was a victim of war, and a victim not only of what had been done to him, but a victim of what he had done, and the guilt that he carried because of his sin, because of his shame. And so the next night he goes back and again tries to leave at the altar call, but the Spirit of God stops him, turns him around and causes him to go forth and to give his life to Jesus Christ. And for the rest of his days, Louis' focus was not necessarily primarily on telling the story of his internment. He spent his days as an evangelist, not as good as Billy, but as a faithful man telling the story of redemption in Jesus Christ. You can't tell the story of Louis' life without including that section of his life. He wrote in one of his books, 
That moment was more than remarkable. It was the most realistic experience I'd ever had. The moment of his conversion. And so for you and me, similarly, while the drama of our lives may not quite be like that, and I hope it's not quite that dark, for you and I to tell the story of our lives, if someone were to write about it, or if we were to write about it, the center, the most realistic moment, the, the high points have to be not just marriage or the birth of children or finding the dream job or retiring from a job. The high points are what God is doing. God's work of redemption in the story of our lives. And so while the verses of our songs may be different, different places, different people, different themes, uh, the chorus, if we were to all write songs, the chorus must be the same for us as God's people. As one hymn writer put it, thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. The joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. David's song is doxological, so must ours be. Second, the second main characteristic we see in David's song here is that it is dramatic. It is a dramatic song. Beginning in verses 5 and 6, David retells the circumstances of his lives in this general way. He describes the, the problem in his life, the severe conflict, and then he begins describing the resolution that comes through God's power. Verses 5 and 6, he describes the conflict as being one of great physical difficulty. He is near death. It says the waves of death are encompassing him, the torrents of destruction assailing him, the cords of Sheol, the place of the dead, entangling him. And what does he do? What is the man of God to do when when stuck and in distress, whether by death or by temptation or any other crisis, were to pray? Verse 7, he calls out to the Lord in his distress, and God hears him and answers him. But listen You probably noticed it as we read earlier. Listen to how David describes God's rescue. He describes it in a really strange, almost bizarre way. He talks about thunder and lightning. He talks about earthquakes and smoke. It sounds at the beginning of these verses, verses 8 and uh, through 12, it sounds like David's describing God as a dragon flying with flames of fire coming forth and and smoke from his nostrils. Later, it sounds like David is drowning and God brings him out of the waters assailing him. What is David doing in these verses? Well, David is describing God's work in what theologians called a theophany, the special appearance of God through natural phenomena. Now, you may be thinking, well, I'm generally familiar with the David story, with these narratives about David's life, about his anointing, about his battle with Goliath, about him running away from Saul and his son Absalom, about David's great 
sin and the path of repentance that the Lord set him on, but I don't remember anything about theophany happening. I don't remember anything about earthquakes or fires or smoke or drownings or floods, and you're right. There are no theophany in David's career as king. So what is David doing? Well, David is a poet. He's he's an artist. He's describing God's work in his life with this artistic style, and he's, he's not just choosing metaphors and figures at random. He's using specific creative metaphors, specific language to describe God's work. He's using the language primarily of the Exodus, of the Exodus story. From Exodus 14, you remember the story of the Israelites fleeing out of Egypt with their backs to the Red Sea. You remember the story of the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Remember the story of the enemy pursuing and them being near death. And think of that narrative as I read verses 16 through 20 again and hear how David is using that story to inform his own story in his life. It says, The channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. David is using this this language from the Exodus narrative to describe God's work in his life for this reason. And it sounds incredibly basic, but it's deeply profound. Why is David using this language? He's reminding himself and us that the same God at work in rescuing Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea from Pharaoh's mighty army with the miracle of waters being separated and armies being consumed, that same God that was at work in those powerful ways in Moses' day is the same God that was at work in David's life. Though he didn't see it or hear it, In the same exact way, it was the same exact God at work with the same exact power. When David was a boy in his father's fields tending sheep, that same God, that God of almighty power and wisdom and sovereign rule over the nations and waters, was with David. When David was in the field with Goliath, that same God was with him, using a little stone to do that mighty work. When David was anointed king, when he was running from Saul, when he was fleeing from his own son Absalom, when David was confronted with his own sin, when David sought to walk in repentance, in each and every of those moments and so many more that we don't even know about, God was with David in sovereign, almighty, and awesome power. 
And while the circumstances may be different from Moses' life to David's and from David's life to ours, God's work in our lives, in your life and in mine, is the same. God's same presence and same power is with us. The stories of the Bible, yes, are historically removed, but they are not personally removed. God is at work in our lives in all kinds of dramatic ways. And too often, we, as we consider God's work in our lives, we domesticate it far too easily. We think that, well, for, for my child to come to faith, it's just the normal thing that Christian children do. Conversion, a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, whether for a child or the chief of sinners, is miraculous. It is God's awesome and almighty work reigning over our natural flesh and spiritual death. You might think, well, for Uh, my family to come to church each Sunday as my parents' family came to church each Sunday and my grandparents came to church each Sunday and to to serve in the church is is no big deal. It's just kind of what we do. It's kind of our tradition. It's kind of our culture. Brothers and sisters, for, for your heart to be committed to a church, to the people of God, truly and genuinely is no light or natural thing. It is the work of God's Spirit. For you to repent of sin, as we've practiced this morning together. For you to stand and sing in worship. For us to be sent out to go and to tell the mighty deeds of the Lord to friends and neighbors and children and grandchildren. That is the work of God's almighty, awesome Spirit at work in us, His church. Too often we underestimate what God could do. We maybe domesticate what he has done, but sometimes we underestimate what he could do. Could he really redeem this marriage or broken relationship? Could he really freeze and undo and maybe even transform this habitual sin that has so afflicted me in my life? Or this addiction? Could God really do those things? Does he really have the power to to break in and interrupt the brokenness of our world and of our lives? David's answer and our answer from God's word is yes. We don't always know how or when. But we know that God rules. We know that this same God that separated the waters of the Red Sea, that delivered David out of the hand of Saul and Absalom, that same God is with you and me. And it is no light thing. It is an awesome, dramatic thing. Now, some of you might think, well, I agree in theory, but I'm not quite there in how I feel. I'm not quite there in that, that sense, that, that weighty 
personal convicting sense that this, this powerful almighty God is really with me. It's too great a jump to go from the pages of Exodus to the pages of Samuel and Psalms to the pages of my life. Maybe God is with some people in this room in that way, but I don't know about me. Well, consider one last passage from this chapter, verses 47 through 51. One last characteristics of David's song. David's song is enduring. It's enduring. It's not only doxological and dramatic, but it is an enduring song for us as God's people. We see this throughout these last few verses, but especially in verse 51. So look down there with me once more. Verse 51, for 50 verses, David has been singing to God about God's work in his life. And now in this last verse, the language changes. In this last verse, David isn't singing to God anymore. It's almost as if he's singing to us. He's referring to himself in the third person. He's describing God indirectly as him. And he's speaking to us here in this last verse. He says, Great salvation he, speaking of God, brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This phrase, steadfast love, is one that we've heard repeated already throughout our worship service this morning. Kids, this is, in Hebrew, a word pronounced chesed. You know you're saying it right when you spit, okay? Chesed. Practice it in front of your parents' faces after church. The most important part of that word, though, is not how to say it, but it's what it means. Chesed means steadfast love. Steadfast love is the kind of love that where even if you do something wrong, the love of God endures. Where even if you distrust or doubt God's promises, the promises keep on being fulfilled. It's the kind of love where even even if you walk away, and walk into paths of sin and ungodliness and self-destruction, God's love walks with you to protect and to restore you. It's this great covenantal word reminding us of the covenant promise David was given by God in 2 Samuel 7, this this promise that he would remain with David in covenant, in this relational bond of grace that could never be broken, that from David's throne and family would come a Savior to finally seal that bond forever by his blood in his body. This steadfast love David says it is shown to his anointed. That word anointed has double meaning. It's both the king, David, the anointed one of God, but also Jesus, the one who was anointed to come to fulfill the promises David was describing. Similarly, 
In the last phrase, it talks about steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. The offspring of David, again, referring to Jesus, but also to you and to me. To those who stand in David's line, not by blood, but by faith, in that most real way, carrying on and fulfilling the covenant. That's the promise that has been given to you and to me through Jesus. And David didn't know Jesus' name. David didn't know all the particular ways in which God's steadfast love would be revealed and fulfilled for us as his people. David could never have imagined in all of the drama he's described in his life and that he's recounting through God's works of redemption through history, he could never have imagined how it was that God would bring his steadfast love to us as his people. And of course, he brought it to you and to me in his son, Jesus, David's greater son, the one who would rule from David's throne, the one who was made like us, that he would go to the cross for us. And you know what? When Jesus died. We read it earlier from Matthew chapter 27. When Jesus died, some of those theophany happened. Earthquakes. Darkness. Because when Jesus died, all the barrier, all of the brokenness that stood between us and God, that was promised to be fulfilled, was finally fulfilled. And God's people were given access to God forever. The curtain of the temple torn in two. All things made new by Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. David could never have have pictured or imagined such wonders. In Jesus, David's song, this song of steadfast love, to his offspring, to God's offspring, has become our song. This is a song we sing. And so it was put on Israel's lips by being put in the Psalter in Psalm 18, and it's put on our lips. The words this morning, but all of its character, all of its content, we share in God's mighty, dramatic work through Jesus Christ, God's Son. The Bible is filled with songs. It's filled with great songs. From Moses' song to Hannah's song that began 1 Samuel to to songs sung through the New Testament. But there's a climactic song that appears in the book of Revelation that in so many ways summarizes what David has been describing. Summarizes it with Specific language celebrating God's mighty work for us who are in God's kingdom through Jesus Christ crucified and raised for us. Hear this song that John heard and saw in his vision that God gave him in Revelation. It says, They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign 
on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Amen.